Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. All right, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm here today to talk about uh, a case that occurred back uh, in, uh, in 1995. Uh, uh, this was, um, yeah, I'll start off by basically talking about uh, the case a little bit, um, you know, what, what happened uh, and, and, and what we know here uh, about this matter. So, first of all, we're going back to uh, May of 1995. Uh, on uh, May 19th of 1995, uh, a, uh, a body was found, an 82-year-old woman uh, who lived on Longmeadow Avenue uh, in the town of Amherst there in the Edwardsville area. Uh, about her body was uh, found uh, in uh, an area uh, between uh, the kitchen and the dining room of her apartment. Uh, the apartment was basically a, a home, uh, a single family home that was converted uh, into four apartments. There was a basement apartment, there was a first floor apartment, there was a second floor apartment, and there was an apartment in the attic. Uh, so there were four apartments that were in uh, this one home, uh, which was now a four-bedroom, uh, a four-unit apartment area. Uh, the victim lived uh, on the second floor, in the second floor apartment. Uh, on the day before, on May 18th of 1995, uh, the victim uh, did not go to her usual places. Uh, she apparently went to her synagogue uh, every day. Uh, and then she did not show up uh, that morning uh, on uh, May 18th. Uh, she, al she also has some other appointments uh, that her family and friends knew about uh, that she did not go to. Uh, so there was some concern uh, on May 18th, uh, going into the evening of May 18th and early morning hours uh, of May 19th, uh, that something was amiss. Now, she had been talking about going to Florida at some point. So... There were some people, again, family members and friends who said, well, she may have already gone to Florida. We may not you know, know exactly when she's going to Florida, uh, but let's go check it out. And so they went to her apartment, um, they being the attic tenant, person who lived in the attic, uh, and the victim's niece. The two of them uh, went to her second floor apartment uh, at about noon, uh, on May 19th of 1995, uh, they got into the apartment um, and they found her body 
uh, lying on the floor, uh, like I said before, in the area between her kitchen uh, and uh, her uh, dining room. The victim was uh, beaten and stabbed multiple times. Uh, and as you can imagine, uh, there was blood everywhere. Uh, there was also blood uh, that was found in other areas of the apartment, including the victim's bedroom, where it appears that uh, there was a robbery that took place as well. So in addition to uh, a murder, uh, we also had uh, uh, a robbery that occurred. And again, the Amherst police um, uh, came there as soon as the niece and the attic uh, tenant um, called 911 and called the police and they arrived immediately thereafter. There was a, a long investigation into this homicide. Uh, this investigation uh, took well over a year and a half. Uh, there were some initial suspects uh, that were identified at the time, and there were additional suspects that were um, also lumped into the um, possible suspects, let's call them possible suspects, and put them in that pool. The possible suspect pool consisted basically of every tenant that this landlord had. Like I said before, the victim was an 82-year-old landlord of not only the three units in her building, but she also owned numerous other properties uh, in Amherst and in the city of Buffalo uh, that she rented out as well. It was well known that the victim wanted all of her rent payments in cash and she wanted them delivered to her at her second floor apartment. And so that was known amongst kind of the tenant world of hers. And so it was well known that she had a lot of cash at her apartment. So with that knowledge, the Amherst Police Department um, put on the list every tenant that she had who um, would have been a possible suspect due to the common knowledge that she had a lot of cash at her apartment. In addition, there were two other suspects who were non-tenants uh, that were uh, identified. Um, uh, one was uh, an individual who was going through a foreclosure proceeding uh, on one of the buildings that she owned. And there was some contention between the two of them over a foreclosure proceeding. Uh, the other was a family member who had borrowed money from her and uh, was not apparently paying it back to her in a timely fashion. So uh, there, were, there were multiple suspects uh, that were um, uh, part of uh, this investigation. Of those multiple suspects uh, was uh, then um, tenant Renee Lynch. Uh, Renee Lynch, um, who uh, is now uh, 67 years old, uh, 
at the time, she would have been in her late 30s. Uh, she was, uh, Renee Lynch was a tenant of the victim. Um, and Renee Lynch lived at Lisbon, on Lisbon Avenue in the city of Buffalo in an apartment that the victim owned. And like I said, Miss Lynch was a tenant. So she was initially in the suspect pool of tenants um, that uh, were, uh, again, identified by the Amherst Police Department as possible suspects. In addition to that, while the police were at the scene, immediately after the body was found, Miss Lynch called the house. And the Amherst police officer picked up the phone and was talking to Renee Lynch on the phone while they were there processing the crime scene. Miss Lynch um, gave them her full name, uh, told the police she was her niece, the victim's niece, which was not true. She was not her niece. Um, and was just calling to kind of, quote unquote, check up on her, which obviously raised the eyebrows of the Amherst Police Department. At some point in the year and a half investigation, uh, they honed in on Renee Lynch. Uh, and uh, at some point, uh, Miss Lynch gave a confession. She confessed uh, that her and an accomplice, and she identified a male individual who I will not name um, because obviously he's not been charged. Um, uh, she identified uh, a male accomplice and her, went to the apartment to rob the landlord. And in the course of the robbery, the male accomplice murdered the victim. And Miss Lynch stated that she never touched the victim. She never had anything to do with the murder at all. She was just present for the, for the homicide while they were in the process of robbing the home. And that was the confession that she gave. The... Uh, confession was uh, corroborated by other individuals um, who she confessed to, specifically one other individual um, who was a jailhouse informant who she uh, allegedly uh, confessed to as well uh, that she did it was part of this uh, while uh, they were in jail. Uh, that's pretty much all the evidence that they had. However, um, the district attorney um, uh, at the time uh, prosecuted the case um, and got a conviction uh, on the murder and on the robbery. Like I said before, the male accomplice, accomplice there was never any other corroborating information uh, or evidence against him. Uh, so they were unable to charge him at a time. Um, and obviously today we are still unable to charge him. 
uh, because again, there's no corroborating evidence. And now we are, like I said, almost, we're here almost 30 years later. Um, so this case first got on my radar after about a year I was in office. And in uh, 2018, uh, Miss Lynch's lawyers, at this time now, Miss Lynch was still in prison. She was found guilty. Uh, she was sentenced to 25 years of life. And she was in jail uh, when I took office on January 1st, 2017. And when this case got on my radar in 2018, about a year after I was in office, uh, she was still in jail. And her defense lawyers um, now, which uh, it was, is the Innocent Project uh, in New York City, along with local counsel uh, Terry Connors here, um, they, um, they made a motion to court. They wanted additional DNA testing done on materials in the home. And I opposed that motion because we were going to get nothing from any new DNA evidence. Miss Lynch, by her own confession, stated that she didn't touch anything. She came in the apartment. Uh, her accomplice did all the work and she just stood there. So if you're just walking into a, walking in the kitchen and you're standing there doing nothing, you're not touching anything, your DNA is not going to get on anything. So there's no point in testing for DNA, additional DNA, because she admitted she didn't touch anything. So I opposed that motion. Uh, it was going to glean no new information at all. The judge, however, um, granted the motion and ordered additional DNA testing done. And as I suspected, none of the DNA came back to her. Not surprising. That's not shocking. I expected that. I expected no DNA to come back to her. But that doesn't mean anything. That's, that's quite frankly useless information because she admitted, stated, she didn't touch anything. Okay, so now um, we, after that was all done, and that, that motion was in 2018, we opposed that. It took a while to litigate that. So now, now we're in a 2020, and the defense lawyers, um, you know, the DNA comes back, and they, they show to me that, hey, her DNA is not there. I said to them, that's not surprising. That doesn't mean anything to me really, okay. Um, but then they said to me, Mr. Flynn, you need to look at something else. You need to look at the fingerprints that were taken from the homicide. Now, again, the fingerprints obviously have DNA on them, okay, but it's actually a separate issue from the DNA. The, the, the DNA doesn't have to be fingerprints, and there was DNA evidence that were not fingerprints, okay? The fingerprints is a separate issue. And they said to me, 
you need to look at the fingerprint issue here because we don't think that the Amherst Police Department turned over all the fingerprints. And I said, okay, I'll look into it. Um, and I had my conviction integrity unit uh, look into this issue. On top of that, I told them, by the way, you know what? Um, I want you to look into the whole case. I want you to do a deep dive on the whole case. Um, uh, you know, and I you know, let, let, let's take a look at this from, from scratch from day one and see what we got here. So we did that. And it, it turns out that at trial, there were two sets of fingerprints that were referenced at trial. Now, again, they weren't admitted into evidence because there was no fingerprints of Renee Lynch. And we knew that from day one. There was no, there was no dispute about that at all, okay? Again, she didn't touch anything, all right? So there's no, her fingerprints weren't there, all right? So the two fingerprints that we knew about, um, uh, they were not admitted as evidence, but they were referenced at trial during witness examination. We, so we had those two fingerprints and the defense lawyers knew about those two fingerprints. There were also three additional fingerprints that were lifted from a vehicle that was found near the apartment. There was a stolen vehicle that was found near the apartment that they took prints from as part of their investigation. It turned out that had nothing to do with the case at all. But those prints um, were known about to the prosecutors, okay? But they had, they had nothing to do with the case at all. So we, the, pro, the DA's office in 1995, now 1996, um, uh, she was found guilty. She was a jury trial in February, 1998. So let's say late 90s. In the late 90s here, we had five prints. It turns out that there were 17 prints taken. And for whatever reason, the other 12 prints were not found at the amp, mis misplaced. Um, I don't know what happened, okay? I'll be honest with you, all right? Um, all, all I know is that 17 prints were taken. Only five were given to the DA's office and the other 12 prints were not. That's a problem. Um, and we uncovered that in our investigation. Even though none of those prints were from Miss Lynch. Um, so the fact that they weren't her prints doesn't mean that she wasn't involved in this, in, in this crime, okay? Because again, remember, she stated she didn't touch anything, all right? So again, the fact that she didn't show up on a prince, whether they were 17 or five, is really, uh, you know, a non-issue here. What's at the issue here is that we, the prosecutors, didn't have 12 of those prints. 
And as such, we did not turn over to the defense 12 of those prints. Uh, in addition to that, there was testimony at trial from an officer that said that, uh, and no, let me take a step back. Of the two prints that we had, that we knew about, that we obviously turned over to the defense, those two prints were from an outside common area. They weren't from inside the apartment. One of the officers at trial testified that there were no usable prints found or lifted from inside the apartment. And that's simply not true. So there was incorrect testimony at trial. In addition to the 12 prints never being given to my, to my office, not mine, but the prior, prior DA at the time. Um, so that's what we uncovered. <clears throat> uh, that is um, technically a Brady violation because we, the prosecutors, are imputed with knowing about everything that law enforcement has. So under the Brady rules, if any police agency has any evidence, even if we don't know about it, we are still responsible for not turning over that evidence. So obviously here, there was no fault on the DA's office here uh, at the time. There was no fault on the prosecutor at the time at all. He didn't know about him. Um, and obviously you can't turn anything over you don't, you don't know about. So it was nothing, he did nothing wrong at all, but we are supposed to know. Um, and even if we don't know, um, it is, it is implied, we are implicated with not knowing. Um, so it, it, it's, it's basically the, the people who uh, are obligated to know about everything. And uh, again, I, I'm not, I wanna be clear here, all right? I have no proof whatsoever that the then Amherst detective was working on the case purposely did not turn over these prints. That is not what I'm saying at all. I have no proof of that. And it would, be un it would be unfair for anyone to say that. Things get lost. Things get sloppy. Things get misplaced. Uh, they clearly turned over five prints. Um, so it's not, you know, if you're going to purposely hide something, you're, you, you might, you know, you, you would probably, it's logical to hide all 17. So they didn't do that, obviously. They, they turned over five, but 12 didn't get turned over. Um, and so there is no accusation here, no matter what the defense counsel may say or anyone else may say, there is no accusation here that anyone in the Amherst Police Department purposely did anything wrong. But that doesn't matter. All that matters is the bottom line. The bottom line is that they should have been turned over. And if they were turned over, we would have then obviously had to turn them over to the defense attorney. And 
that information uh, could have, in my opinion, created reasonable doubt. Especially when you all, on top of that, you had incorrect testimony that there was no usable prints that were lifted from inside the apartment. And that's not true. There were a number of usable prints that were lifted from inside the apartment. So how this played out was the defense attorney made a motion. Uh, they made a motion to set aside the verdict, to vacate the verdict based upon um, the fingerprints not being turned over to the defense. Uh, I did not oppose that motion. And based upon my not opposing the motion, it was granted. And the judge granted the motion to vacate the conviction. That was step one. So now once the, once the vacation, the verdict now was vacated, now I'm back to square one now. Now I have, I still have a valid indictment, all right? So my, my indictment is still valid. I now have an indictment and it's up to me now whether or not I'm going to follow through on that indictment and retry the case. And due to the fact that we are almost 30 years later, uh, most of my evidence is missing or I can't even use. Missing in the sense that um, at trial, there were 15 witnesses called. Of those 15, six are dead. One more I can't find. Three have horrible memories and they cannot recall anything. Um, matter of fact, one of the three told my people that he can't even remember testifying at trial. So of my 15 witnesses that I had at trial, um, 10 of them are useless. Uh, and on top of that, um, 30 years now almost has gone by. Um, Miss Lynch has, um, been released from prison, uh, before, before the defense attorney made the motion to, uh, vacate the verdict, uh, Miss Lynch was up for parole and I consented to her parole release, uh, a year or so ago. I consented to her parole release, um, and she was released. Um, over a year ago, so she did about 24 years, 23 years in jail already, uh, and so uh, she's done her time already. Uh, retrying the case would serve really no purpose at all. She's not going to get any additional time. If I retried the case and got a guilty verdict, um, the judge would just give her time served already, and so there's no point in wasting the taxpayers' dollars um, to... Uh, and the taxpayers' resources to have uh, another trial here. Uh, so uh, earlier this week, uh, I filed a motion to dismiss the indictment. 
And the judge signed that motion yesterday to dismiss the indictment. And the matter versus Miss Lynch is over. Um, let, let, let me, then I'll take, you know, all your questions, obviously. Let, let, let me point out a couple of things, though, that, you know, I, I, I don't, I want the, I want the, 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 the reports of this to be accurate. All right. Um, I am not exonerating Miss Lynch. Okay. Uh, I am not up here saying that she did not do this. Uh, that, that, that is not what happened here. Okay. Uh, I am saying that I do not have, uh, enough evidence to go forward 30 years later. And I am saying that it would be a waste of taxpayer dollars to go forward 30 years later. Uh, I consent or I did not oppose the motion to vacate the verdict because I recognize that it's problematic that all the fingerprints were not turned over. And I recognize that and there's no way around that. That's a fact. The fact is there were 12 prints that were not turned over. Um, and that's a given. And that's a problem on top of the fact that one of the witnesses testified that uh, there were no usable prints taken from the apartment, which was not true. Uh, and so that is why I did not oppose the motion to vacate and it's logistical reasons that I'm not going forward with a new trial. So Miss Lynch was not exonerated. Okay. Um, the defense lawyers who did a great job here. Okay. Mr. Connors is one of the finest attorneys, not only in Buffalo, but in the state of New York, uh, the innocence project, um, they, they do good work. Um, uh, and, 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 and they, and, and I respect, I respect the job that they do. Um, even though I disagree with them on a lot of things, um, I respect their mission I respect them as an institution and I respect the job that they did here in this case. However, um, you know, their portrayal of this matter um, through their press release. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.